This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. Let's pray together. Loving Father, as we sang over our children, we pray for ourselves. Send out your light and your truth that they may lead us. Bring us to your holy hill and to your dwelling that we may gaze upon the face of God. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Well, today is the second Sunday of Epiphany. And Epiphany is one of the seasons in the Christian calendar that we just don't really talk a whole lot about. And I think part of the reason is that it's nestled between these great giants, Advent and Christmas in Lent, and so it just gets overshadowed by them. To borrow a phrase from my dad that I would hear him saying growing up, sometimes I think Epiphany is like the red-headed stepchild of the liturgical seasons. I don't know if you've ever heard that phrase. It's often overlooked and ignored. And this is unfortunate because I think this season has a lot to teach us. Well, the word epiphany means to become visible or to be revealed. And during this season, Robert Weber writes, we celebrate the unveiling of God's glory revealed in Jesus. And the season of epiphany encourages us to order our lives around this revelation, around the life of Christ. And so I think the season of epiphany invites us into a certain kind of spirituality, what I will call a spirituality of beholding, to use that beautiful old word. A spirituality of beholding is about intentionally and lovingly focusing our eyes on Jesus, on the glorious revelation of God in the person of Jesus, so that as we look at Jesus, this vision can change us. And so I want to help us to grow in this spirituality of beholding this morning. And one verse is going to guide us. My whole sermon really is going to be about unpacking John 1.29. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So we'll begin with this word, behold. And first, I want to talk about why what we pay attention to matters. We'll talk about why what we pay attention to matters. Now, on any given week, when I am working on a sermon, particularly a passage in the New Testament, one of the things, one of my practices, is to translate the passage in Greek uh, to English. And I do this not because I'm an amazing Greek scholar. The main reason I do this is because reading in Greek forces me to slow down. I'm way better at reading English than I am in Greek. When I read the Bible in English, it's so easy to skim passages and to see what I've always seen in those passages. But when I read in Greek, I find the familiar becomes unfamiliar, and I begin to notice things that I might have missed otherwise. And by the way, you don't have to be able to read in Greek to experience this kind of thing in the scriptures. You can do something very similar by comparing two or three different translations of the same passage. This causes us to slow down. And to pay attention, we start to see the differences, and that leads us into new insights. 
But anyways, as I was reading John 1, 29 to 42 this past week, studying it, I had a kind of epiphany. I noticed something that I had never seen before in this passage. I noticed the emphasis on vision. In these 14 verses, there are about a dozen references to sight or seeing. It means in this short passage, almost every single verse, and some verses have two references, have a reference to vision. In verse 29, he saw Jesus was coming. Behold, the Lamb of God. In verse 32, I saw the Spirit. In verse 33, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain. Verse 34, I myself have seen that this is the Son of God. In verse 36, and as he watched Jesus walk by, he exclaimed again, Behold, the Lamb of God. I think that was six or seven. I could keep going. There's 12 references to sight or seeing in these 14 verses. I don't know another passage in the scriptures where one concept is repeated so many times in so few verses. And I'm pointing this out, I'm making a big deal out of this, not because I think this is just a fun Bible fact that's interesting for us to know. I think that God wants us to see something here. This repetition is a clue that this is really important. This is something we should pay attention to. All this repetition tells us that God doesn't want our eyes just to skim right past this. He wants us to notice something here. And the question is, what might God want us to notice? Well, there are probably other answers, but I think at least one answer might be that God wants us to reflect on vision itself. To reflect on and consider the power of vision in shaping who it is that we are becoming, the people that we're becoming. The fact is, what we pay attention to shapes us. Here's a, a silly example. The reason why my kids love Bob Dylan is because they see that I enjoy Bob Dylan's music. And here's a slightly less silly example. The reason why my kids are obsessed with my phone is because they see that I'm obsessed with my phone. What we behold, who we behold, these things shape us. It's almost like a law of human nature. Gregory Beale describes this law of human nature like this. He says, as humans, we become what we behold. We become what we behold. We see this throughout the scriptures. In Psalm 115, verse 8, it says, If we fix our eyes on idols, we become like them. And we see this in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 8. Paul writes, as we behold the glory of the Lord, as we look at God, we are transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another by the power of the Spirit. We become what we behold. What we pay attention to matters. And so I want us to pause and think about this for a minute. Think back to this past week over this past month, what are the things that have been captivating your attention? What have you been beholding? What are those things doing to you? How are they forming you? Are they making you 
more like Jesus or less like him? Well, these are good epiphany questions. Epiphany-shaped spirituality reminds us of the power of beholding. And it invites us to pay attention to what we're paying attention to, to reflect on these things. Now, what I want to do now is help us behold the vision that John tells us to behold twice in this passage. And that vision is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so I want to unpack this for the next few minutes, and I want us to look at what this shows us about who Jesus is and what Jesus does. This vision shows us who Jesus is and what Jesus does. So what does this passage tell us about who Jesus is? Well, if we take a step back and look at the whole passage, sort of look at it as a whole, John reveals several things about Jesus. In verse 30, he tells us that Jesus is a man. He's a human being. In verse 32, Jesus is the one who has the Spirit. And in verse 34, Jesus is the Son of God. These aren't the main things that I want us to focus in on, but they're all really important, and we're going to come back to them a little bit later. But in terms of who Jesus is, the main thing I want us to focus on is the thing that John repeats twice. Jesus is the Lamb. That's who he is. That's where we're going to zoom in this morning. We're going to look at Jesus as the Lamb. And it's hard to overstate just how important this image is of the Lamb if we want to understand, if we want to see Jesus clearly. I think this comes through when we look at all of the scriptures that were read for us this morning. You probably noticed the theme that ties them all together, the Lamb. Taken together, these passages develop a theme almost like a movement in a symphony. Together, they're kind of like a visual symphony in a way. In Exodus 12, we see the exposition of the theme. The Lamb is introduced as the Passover Lamb, the sacrifice whose blood causes God's judgment to pass over God's people. You can't understand Jesus as the lamb without understanding the Passover. And then in John 1, this same theme of the lamb is developed. New colors and new textures are added to the image. John reveals a wonderful surprise. The Passover lamb has a human face. The true Passover lamb, the ultimate sacrifice, is Jesus of Nazareth. And then in Revelation 5, that beautiful vision, we see the recapitulation of this entire theme. Everything is brought home. The Lamb is no longer just the center of Israel's worship or the focus of a few disciples. The sacrificial Lamb is the focal point of the whole world, the entire cosmos. Revelation 5.13 says, every creature in heaven and on earth And under the earth and in the sea, everyone and everything beholds this lamb and sings to him a song. To the one seated on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor, glory and might forever and ever. Jesus is the lamb. That's who he is. And all eyes behold him because of what he does. The lamb takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb is worthy of our attention. He's worthy of our worship because he takes away our sin. That's what he does. And so I want to spend some time this morning talking 
about sin. Because I know for some of us, this word sin is so foreign that we don't really have any idea what it means. And for others of us, this word sin is so familiar that it's almost lost its meaning. And so I want to share an analogy to help us to see what sin is. Maybe in a new way, maybe for the first time. I find it helpful to to think of sin as a kind of sickness. A sickness unto death, as Kierkegaard describes it. We might think of sin as a kind of congenital lung cancer. It's a mysterious disease, uniquely terrible, and it originated in our first parents when they disobeyed God. And it has been passed down, this disease, from one generation to the next, and it infects every single one of us. It's a disease, it's a sickness that corrupts our lungs. It prevents us from breathing like we're meant to breathe and running like we're meant to run. And this sickness always leads to death. It's terminal. It is a sickness unto death. This is the condition that we're born into. We're born into sin. But sin isn't just something that happens to us. We're not merely victims. We're not just sick patients. We willfully participate in the disease. We willfully and sometimes joyfully participate in our own demise. To extend the analogy a bit further, even though we're all born with this disease, it's like every single one of us has decided to take up smoking cigarettes. Each inhale of smoke temporarily satisfies our addiction and brings death one breath closer. Each exhale of smoke, secondhand smoke, wounds the lungs of those around us. This is what sin is like, like a disease. And this is what the Lamb of God takes away. And Jesus doesn't just heal us from a distance. He doesn't just heal us while he's hiding behind a hazmat suit. The Lamb takes away sin by taking it upon himself. This is what Jesus does on the cross. He takes our sickness unto death. Now, I want you to listen to how this is described in Isaiah 53, perhaps the most beautiful description of what Jesus does. This is about the lamb. Surely he has borne our infirmities and carried our diseases. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that made us whole, and by his bruises we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have all turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is talking about the Lamb. These words were written 700 years before Jesus, but they point us directly to him. He is the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. And beholding this lamb is the key to our salvation. When we behold the lamb, when we fix our eyes on Jesus and in faith follow him, we become what we behold. I want you to think back to those other descriptions of Jesus that I just barely mentioned a moment ago. He's the Son of God. He's a human being. He's filled with the Spirit. 
I said we'd come back to those things, and we're going to come back to them now. When we behold the Lamb, this is who we become. As we behold the Lamb who is the Son of God, we become adopted children of the Father. As we behold the Lamb who is a man, who is a human being, He redeems our humanity. As we behold the Lamb in whom the Spirit lives, we are filled with that same Spirit. As we behold the glory of the Lord, we are transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. When we behold the Lamb, we become like Him. And this is what the season of Epiphany invites us into. And this is why a spirituality of beholding is so important. And to end, I want to help us think about how we can grow in our capacity to do this, to grow in our capacity to behold the Lamb, day by day and moment by moment. Now, it'll probably come as no surprise to hear that I think so much of this has to do with attention. I talk about attention a lot because I'm convinced that the greatest threat to our spiritual lives is distraction, particularly distraction from technology. If we want to behold the Lamb, the first thing I think we need to do is to grow in our capacity to pay attention, to pay attention to the things that matter most. So how do we do this? How do we increase our attention span? Well, I want to share some wisdom from an article I read this past week in the New York Times. The article was called, How to Focus Like It's 1990. It's a pretty good title. And it talks about how our devices, our screens, have shortened our attention span, and it offers two practices to help us regain the lost art of attention. I want to share those practices with you. The first practice is taking tech timeouts, taking tech timeouts. Now, a tech timeout is very simply regularly scheduled breaks from technology. These breaks help to sort of break the spell of our screens. Now, Andy Crouch, one of my favorite Christian writers on faith and technology, suggests some helpful intervals for these tech timeouts. He recommends going tech-free for one hour a day one day a week, and one month a year. Going tech-free for one hour a day, one day a week, and one month a year. Doing this breaks the spell of our screens so that we can actually focus our eyes on the things that matter most. And this will probably look different for each of us as we redirect our attention to things that help us refocus on Jesus. For me, it's silence and going for a run. These are things that I like to do to help me recenter on Jesus. For you, it might be going for a hike in the woods or having a conversation with a friend, or maybe it's going to an art museum or creating art. The possibilities are endless. We take breaks from our technology to refocus on Jesus. And this is a really great practice because it frees us from distraction so that we can actually look up and open our eyes and see Jesus. So that's the first practice. The second one is what she calls deep reading on paper. And the medium is essential here. It has to be paper. We have to do this deep reading on paper. 
Studies show that we read differently on screens. On screens, our eyes tend to skim and to scan and to scroll. But when we read on paper, our eyes slow down. Reading on paper helps us to immerse ourselves in what we're reading and to focus. I don't think we have to think too hard about how this practice of deep reading applies to a spirituality of beholding, right? Christians are people of the book. In addition to our Eucharistic worship, one of the best ways that we can behold Jesus is to read our Bibles. As we saw with our scriptures today, everything in the Bible either prepares us for or points us to Jesus. Right? This isn't a new idea, but it's always worth repeating. If we want to behold Jesus, we should read our Bibles, ideally in community and ideally on paper. Now, just before I finish, I want to point out that these two practices focuses, focus on what we can do to see Jesus. They focus on what we can do. But I don't want us to get the wrong idea. I don't want us to think that beholding Jesus is entirely up to us. Seeing Jesus is always a gift. It's always a revelation. But that being said, cultivating attention still matters. This is the part that we can play in creating the conditions to behold the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. I love how Annie Dillard describes this dynamic. She says, we cannot cause the light. The most we can do is try to put ourselves in the path of its beam. We can't cause the light. The most we can do is put ourselves in the path of its beam. Well, during Epiphany, we celebrate the fact that the light has come into the world. It has appeared. And a spirituality of beholding is about trying to put ourselves in the path of his beam. May God open our eyes to the light so that we might behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Amen.